Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Director of Somnium Recruitment and friend of mine for well, at least over 10 years. Um, you built up uh, Somnium since 2018. Got a strong reputation for what you're doing around tailored recruitment in and around London. And when I launched this podcast a few weeks ago, you contacted me and said that we should have a chat. And I immediately said yes for two reasons. One, because we haven't spoken since 2014 and I wanted to catch up. And two, because I've been pondering a big leadership question for quite a while that I think you might be able to give me some insights on. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long time since we, we caught up. So, uh, And I've listened to some of your previous episodes and yeah, I'm really looking forward to having this chat today. Yeah, I've been excited about this one. I'm really looking forward to it. Especially because you set your business up since we last spoke, and I'm re and in fact, not only did you set your business up since we last spoke, you moved into recruitment uh, about the time I left the UK and went to Australia. So I'm really interested in what drew you to this business. You know, within my life in corporate, I spend a lot of time dealing with re recruiters, either as a candidate or or more often as a, a client. So what took you into that industry? It's a it's a really um, interesting story when I kind of pick it apart. Kind of um, growing up as a child, I was, you know, I was involved in lots of sports, playing at quite a good level. Obviously, you know, you know, with the BMX racing and stuff. But I played football, I played rugby, I done trampolining, you know, anything that was sport or competitive, I was involved in. Um, <clears throat> so I've always been driven and ambitious and in in a, a sporting capacity but never kind of really relayed that into business. I mean, I wouldn't say I was top of the class at school, but I was definitely intelligent enough. I was in top sets and stuff. Didn't get the best grades, but good enough grades. Uh, always a little bit mischievous, you know, uh, that's part and parcel of kind of my personality. Um, so when I left school, didn't really know exactly where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. So I actually embarked on a performing arts um, a performing arts course and not many people know about this no it was me neither just something that i really enjoyed you know i've always loved talking to people i've loved um kind of i guess people watching and being able to kind of become a different person and, and the acting element i just really found it quite fascinating so got involved in that at, at, at around 17 18 and then quite quickly um it become apparent i needed to get a, a job because I had a, a, my partner at the time was pregnant and stuff around when I was 18 years old. So I ended up being a floor layer. Um, so I'd done carpet fitting for around 10 years. Um, uh, really enjoyed it. It was a, a tough job, obviously very heavy on the body, um, you know, the knees and the back. Um, so I, I was doing that for around 10 years before and still racing and competing at quite a good level when it comes to BMX racing. Um, and then I unfortunately had quite a bad injury. Uh, but actually, when I look back on it now, it, I, it kind of makes me realise that everything happens for a reason. So I, I had an injury at the World Championships of BMX in 2012, tried to return to um, my day job as a floor layer, and my body just wouldn't let me do it. So 
at that time I was at a bit of a crossroads, didn't really know what I wanted to do in my career, didn't really know, you know, all I'd ever known was working on a site, um, you know, because we used to do uh, brand new builds, refurbishment, so it's quite a lot of site work as such. <clears throat> so, yeah, it was really at a crossroads and then um, was having some conversations with some of my friends and someone was like, I think you'd be great in recruitment. And I was like, okay, well, tell me a little bit more about what recruitment is at this time. Uh, quite naive in myself I thought people still apply for jobs at the back of a newspaper um, and when they started describing it a little bit of, of what it entailed and kind of you know the I guess the variety of roles and what you'd be doing on a day-to-day -day basis it really intrigued me so started applying for some jobs and I happened to land a job in Liverpool Street Central London uh, working for the largest corporate uh, one of the largest corporates in the world um, and I joined at a really, really good time. So at that time, I was 26 and joined uh, this large corporate at a time where they were setting up a brand new London office. So I think when I joined, there was around six, five, maybe six staff members. Um, and over the next two and a half years, we had exponential growth. We went from five staff members to 45 staff members. And um, I remember at the time I took a significant drop in salary because obviously I, I was a trainee. I didn't have no office experience. I was very green and, and raw as such. And I remember going in there on the first day and there was four or five people in the office, all first class um, degree graduates, um, highly intelligent in these amazing suits. And I was looking around thinking, don't really belong here like I, it was almost like a bit of imposter syndrome I was a bit like oh my god am, am I going to be able to do this and then one thing that become apparent quite quickly for me is yes they were really intelligent people great people by the way I still speak to to some of them now um but I had one thing in terms of what from the outset what I thought was that they didn't have was an ability to be able to relate to everyone whether it's a cleaner whether it's a you know, the owner of a multi-million pound business, whether they're from, um, you know, England, the Caribbean, East Asia, um, wherever, you know, I could always find that common ground and that relatability to be able to build rapport with people. Um, and also I had, a, a because of my competitive background in the past, I had a burning desire to be successful. So I would be the last one in the office most nights. And I know that's not always the healthiest way, but when you're starting at the bottom, I am a firm believer that, you know, there's no kind of secret source or shortcut to to success and to being successful. So I used to work really hard, you know, and I would go above and beyond um, in terms of networking myself within within the organization. Although there was only four or five that worked directly for the company I worked for, we was part of a larger organization um, and we was in head office in, in London and there was around 400 people. So the CEO of... Um, the group of companies of over 5,000 staff was in our office. And I was, I would always go and speak to her and my, my staff kind of colleagues would say, oh my God, you, you can't talk to her. And I was like, why not? She's, she's the CEO. Like, I want to talk to her. I want to, you know, I want to be involved in these kind of people. So from that sense, I was lucky in the sense that I got in at a really good time. And because the business done really well the new office in London we grew quite quickly and obviously with growth comes opportunity and when the opportunities come up I grabbed them with both hands had a, a, a quite a, a, a um how would I say I got promoted quite quickly and then um 
yeah, so that was kind of the start of my recruitment journey, um, working for a large corporate. But one thing I'll say is I had really good um, training, the the training, the development, the kind of handholding they'd done for me in the first three to six months were, yeah, they were invaluable to me. They were so they were so good in that sense. Um, and also we had a, a, my director at the time, he was quite strict, let's say. Um, he wouldn't mince his words. He was quite direct and straight talking. And I think for me, being from kind of my background and and kind of my my kind of youth years, I think that really helped me because there was no nonsense. It was kind of this is what I expect. This is what you do. And if you didn't do it, there was always consequences. So for me, you know, I think I'm at that stage in my life, I was kind of if you were to give me an inch, I would have probably took a mile. So I feel like that set really good kind of foundations for the rest of my kind of recruitment career. Um, so yeah, I was in London for three years and then um i actually had a there was a bit of a family crisis from our side i don't think you actually know this but my um my nephew my brother's stepson uh kieran he was actually um stabbed uh during the high school he was in year 11 no, got in an altercation and a, and a young lad um pulled a knife out on him and he got stabbed five times and for me at this time i was working Kind of, I was getting up at 6 a.m. to get the train into London. I was getting home at 8, 9, 10 p.m. at night. My children were, were kind of still quite young and I was throwing myself heavily into work. And that was like a massive wake up call for me. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, thankfully, Touchwood, Kieran's had a full recovery. He's, he's, um, he's absolutely fine. He's a, a really nice young lad that's doing really well for himself and um, but that was like a wake-up call for me so at this point the next day when I got the news I obviously went to the hospital with the family and stuff I actually went back into work the next day and handed in my notice wow straight said, I'm yeah I want to be closer to home and you know the MD rang me fair play to him within kind of 15-20 minutes of getting the news and said look what's going on explained it all to him he said look we'll find something else for you and um, I wasn't holding my breath at that time um, but you know true to his word they managed to find me an opportunity in Milton Keynes which was around 25 minutes commute from my house so transferred over to Milton Keynes um, was there for nine months worked my way up again and then a new opportunity come up as an operations manager over in Cambridge where I ended up over in Cambridge for about a year and a half as an operations manager so within this kind of five-year time scale I went from a trainee um, consultant to running my own operation so it was quite a, uh, quite a journey um, and then yeah I guess that's kind of how I fell into recruitment really that's an amazing story and I've been scribbling down little bits and bobs as you've been going through that and there's so much to unpick in that I think and I think the first <laughs> thing is that you know five, five years with quite a significant change from where you started to where you, where you finished up I have this I have this theory and I talk to people that work for me and people I work for quite a lot the more ground you cover the better equipped you are to do whatever it is you're trying to you know it, it, any way in which you can amass more experience quickly is going to make you mm. better at what you're doing and I, th it, it, I mean I guess from your you know your starting point working in the flooring industry completely different you know but then you move into recruitment so you've experienced things that might you know upset other people or put them off their stride 
not an issue for you because you you know you've learned that through that trade so then you bring that skills and all that experience into the new one and you're able to cope with so much earlier which then allows you to start to concentrate and focus on other things it's um and i guess i guess your work rate brought more opportunity your way as well and and the business was growing at the same time Mm. yeah it was a it was a very competitive environment as well and uh you know from my sporting upbringing um one of the things I've never been good at is losing. Uh, I've always been extremely competitive, and sometimes to my own detriment. Uh, but you know, in recruitment, what it was for me was I'm quite a curious person. I want to know the ins and outs of everything. And um, so the fact that you get to talk to different people all day, every day, the fact that you get to meet a range of different clients in a range of different industries, and it used to fascinate me how they operate and how they make money. And, you know, for example, one of the businesses that we work with at the minute, they make um, safety and protective gear for industrial warehouses and they turn over millions and millions and millions of pounds. So, you know, the different different clients, different industries, how they operate and also being competitive and, and driven, ambitious and ambitious myself. When I worked in recruitment, it was kind of if you do X, Y, and Z, you will earn X, Y, and Z. And for me, it was almost like a, um, a solo mindset mentality that actually it's not like a football team, whereas if the goalkeeper drops one in the back of the net in the last minute, you lose the game. If I do this, I will get that. So that really driv- drove me because I knew that I was in charge of kind of creating my own destiny as such. And um, so... Yeah, from that point to combine kind of my curiosity, the fact that I get to speak to people all day, every day, the fact that you're kind of almost running your own little business. Um, obviously, there's some kind of um, frameworks that you have to stick within, but negotiating my own fees, going out to meetings and meeting with clients, going to networking events, taking client lunches, all of it, when I look back, aligned with the skills that I kind of have as a human and have built up from a young age, so when I fell into recruitment, quite honestly, the first three years, because we was building a, a, a new team in London as well, it was very exciting. There was lots of kind of new things going on. So that also combined with my skills, it was kind of a match made in heaven for me, really. Yeah. And you didn't come from a sales background. So, so you, know, you come through the flooring industry and then you move into something that's predominantly, it's really based around the mechanics of sales. And, you know, one of the things that came up in a podcast that I did uh, a few weeks ago with Andy Fell, who, who went through the sales route in financial services is, is activity. If you're doing the activity, you know, the right activity in the right volume, and you've got the right attitude, the results will come. But you didn't know yeah. that when you walked in the door, but it seems like you cottoned onto that very quickly. How was that? Yeah, the... 100%. Firstly, I, I listened to Andy's podcast. It was a really, really good and informative conversation that I took quite a lot of golden nuggets away from. Um, so <laughs> absolutely, I guess from the early kind of weeks, the expectations were laid out pretty clear in terms of volume of calls. We used to do something called blitzing where you go out and knock doors kind of cold Um you know, and the expectations of kind of activity was laid out pretty early to me. Um, and, you know, I'd watch some of my peers, um, I'd watch the good ones, 
and then I'd also watch the bad ones and I'd see what the difference was. And quite quickly, I saw and picked up some behaviours and habits of what the successful people were doing in terms of kind of the one thing the director always used to say to me is, do you know how you can tell a good recruiter? By how quick they walk. You know, if you're walking super slow through London on a stroll, you're probably not in a rush to, to make money or or to get to a meeting or to or whatever that looks like. And that always kind of stuck with me. I was like, at first, I didn't really understand it. But now kind of being the owner of business, I, I do understand it a, a lot more. But creating the right habits, kind of following the expectations, but always doing that little bit extra. I think that stood me in, in really good stead. Um, and also, in a weird way, I almost liked it when clients said no to me. It was a challenge. I liked it when people and also if people have got good recruitment relationships with their current partners and providers, if you're picking up the phone or kind of going to a meeting and immediately they want to work with you, for me, that is a bit of a red flag because if I've nurtured and worked to win a client for and I've done a good job for them for years and years and years and then they entertain other customers, for me, morally, that doesn't sit well with me. So I always knew that some of the people that were saying no consistently, if I could keep chipping away, just keep gaining information, kind of understanding kind of what the people they're working with currently are doing well, what they're not doing well, what kind of charge rates they're working to, where they're attracting candidates, or there was always for me a way that I would find, I wouldn't say a weakness, but an opportunity for me to be able to support them and add value to them through giving them great people. I think, I think really you should probably should have been in this trade 20 years before you started because it's a perfect match for you. I honestly wish I, yeah. I wish I would have. I really do. And I think back to, you know, when you weren't in this trade, but you were around the BMX scene and you built, you know, what ended up being a very successful team that, that is still running now. And you had to go through the process of setting that team up, convincing people it was a good idea, recruiting the right people onto the team, work, you know, recruiting the right sponsors, setting up a proposition that they wanted. And anyone that knows BMX racing knows that that, that the sport isn't awash with money, but you created mm -hmm. a you know a really good proposition, and it was you know a fairly serious sized team from day one. That that required all the same attributes. It requires to convince a client to put their trust in you. Yeah, definitely. It, there's definitely some crossovers, and I think actually running the team, yes, but also the the actual racing element as well, where when you get onto the gate, it's you first, the other seven riders, right? <laughs> Winner takes all. Um, there's no excuses, and I think recruitment is is pretty clear cut like that as well, right? Um, you you reap what you sow as such. If you do all of the right things, you'll get the right result. So there's definitely lots of transferables. Definitely. From that side, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I definitely feel like it was my calling. So you've accelerated your your skills and knowledge in this industry for five years, and and then there comes a decision point where you decide to create your own business, which is a scary yeah. proposition because all of a sudden you've got nowhere to hide. It's all on you. What what was the catalyst for making you decide to do that? It's interesting you should say that because I actually viewed it in a different mindset because I actually felt more under pressure as an operations manager for a corporate with a team underneath me than setting up my own business because initially when I set up the own, my own business, I had no ambitions to grow. 
I was just fed up of where I was and and all of the kind of you know all of the stresses and and weights that get put on your shoulders when you're you're running an operation and essentially you're no matter how good I was it didn't matter because I had five six seven other people that if they weren't performing indirectly it then affected me because I was in charge so and it was a real tough time I'm not going to lie it was a real a real tough time in the sense of going from being a top performing recruitment consultant and I'm not going to lie I was quite a selfish from from being a BMX racer through to recruitment uh, just worrying about yourself you're quite selfish so if you perform to your optimum day in day out you'll get the results it was kind of like Joe Bloggs next to me is not hitting their targets they're not hitting their budget well, okay well that's not really my problem like if i keep doing what i'm going to do i'm just going to concentrate on my own results so to go from that to then being airdropped into an operation they were like well you're good at sales you've built new business areas before you're obviously really good at the recruitment element because you kind of got them client relationships you you're good at matching the right candidates to the right clients go and run an operation and kind of got sold the dream a little bit went in Firstly, Cambridge is a very difficult market. Um, but secondly, I had to recruit a team to work for me. And I had lots of these behaviors and habits that were quite selfish and single-minded because that's what I'd done for the last three and a half years. And I'd done very well at it. And they don't naturally transfer into becoming a good leader and a good manager. So if I was to look back at that now, that year and a half, two years in Cambridge, I would probably completely rip up the whole script and do everything different. And I think it was a, a real eye opener for me. And it was kind of, we, we still done fairly well and had, you know, reasonable um, success there, but the pressures and the problems that I was picking up all day, every day from staff, from senior management, from um, this, this office had notoriously not been very successful. Um, and I thought, because of my track record, they probably thought, put Chris in there, you know, he'll go in there and sort it out. I didn't have the right skills at the time. I had the right skills to be a good recruiter, but not a leader. So it didn't go very well. So I, I actually resigned um, from there. Um, and I was unsure of what I was going to do. I was really, really unsure. Sales was obviously the thing that I was very interested in um, and very good at. And by this time, when I had the, kind of um when i moved into the operations job and got the promotion i then stopped doing the delivery element so i wasn't actually finding the candidates anymore i'm still kind of facing the clients and you know but i was heading up the budgets all the PL and all of that stuff i was in charge of all of that so it was new areas so it was good to get that exposure and learn that side of things but the at this point i didn't enjoy the candidate delivery piece anymore and that had gone so it was like left there didn't really know what i was going to do so sales was my bag i got an opportunity to work for i got headhunted to go and work as a national sales director for a embroidery a sports clothing embroidery company so i went there and um i was really excited because obviously sport is something i'm very passionate about sales is something i'm really passionate about and uh it was it was uh, a disaster to be honest um it was just unorganized i had no tools it was uh, i was being micromanaged from the minute i walked in the door mm. um because i was working remotely and my the owner was up in scotland so he'd ring me and say you're not on microsoft teams what are you doing it's like, 
what? I'm, I've just been, you know, if I've been to this meeting or if I've gone to the toilet or whatever it might have been. So, and this company was making millions. Um, so I stayed for a little bit longer and kind of, um, they had some really good staff there. I got them really well in the depot in Milton Keynes. Um, so I understood the business model. I spent time with the owner. And then at that point, it was when I thought, you know, being actually working that closely with the owner of a business and seeing how successful they are and knowing my skills and what I'd learned over the last five years, I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. And also I was in that mindset of, if I start a business on my own, then I don't have to manage other people. I will get back what I put out. So it's almost like going back to that initial consultant mentality where if I work hard, be in charge of my own results, everything will come good. So yeah, um, started Somnium Recruitment. Um, no ambitions or kind of plans to grow it at the start. And uh, the rest is, is kind of history. But the, one of the main drivers behind the leaving corporate and, and kind of eventually starting on my own was the higher I went up the ladder, um, the more you become exposed to and it wasn't all as it seemed at the bottom, if that makes sense. It wasn't so much about the people. It wasn't so much about the candidates and looking after the clients. It was more about hitting the PL, which obviously is understandable because that's business, right? But it was it, it felt like we was lining shareholders' pockets as opposed to actually really looking after and investing in our people. Um so that was one that was kind of I would say the main reason why I left and, and decided to start on my own. So you're drawn back to the sharp end and the results are very much down to the effort you put in, in full control, but you're not a one person show anymore. Somnians grown. No, we're not. Yeah, no. So, um, COVID, um, COVID was a change. Well, I mean, at the start, at the start, it was always me. Um, just had a handful of clients, worked really closely with them. Again, I had to start a brand new business area because my <laughs> store it was in London, Milton Keynes and Cambridge. And obviously I was covering Luton for Bedfordshire. And at the time, my life partner, Gemma, had her own business in recruitment and they were in Milton Keynes. So one of the things that we discussed, obviously me starting the same business as her was, you don't come on my patch and I won't go on yours. So I literally had to start a brand new patch. So um, kind of Bedfordshire was my area. So again, just went back to literally five years prior and just rolled it out, done exactly what I'd done five years earlier, picked up some really good clients, early doors and <laughs> looked after them really well. And then it grew and uh, naturally it got to a point where it was like, actually, I need some more help. And then, um, then I, then my brother come on board. I don't know if you know that. I, I, I do remember that. I saw him quite active on LinkedIn for a period of time. Yeah, so Lawrence come on board. At this point, I was kind of screaming out for a business partner. Um, screaming out for a business partner because I feel like after about a year, I knew that we had I knew that we had something good going on. And I knew I kind of took the London mentality and and kind of airdropped it into Bedfordshire. And Bedfordshire historically again i'm not here to talk bad about any of our competitors or anything like that but bedfordshire traditionally was do what you've always done kind of get what you've always got 
approach. This is how we work, like it or lump kind of thing. Whereas we're very dynamic. We tailor our service to every single client. No, no service is the same. So we had like really good results really quickly. Um, and it was becoming a lot again to me because I was ended up doing the delivery. I ended up being a delivery consultant because we had so many clients that were building and we were working with I had too many jobs and it was just me. So but who can I, who can I trust? Who can, who do I, this is my baby. Who can I trust? Who can I work really closely with? And that's how Lawrence come on board. Um, and yeah, Lawrence was with us for about a year, year and a half. Lawrence and I, obviously, you know, Lawrence, um, we're very different. Lawrence is very laid back, very, um, he's a, he's a shorts and flip flop guy, you know, he's chilled, calm and, um, recruitment unfortunately just wasn't for him he did he actually he, he done some good work with us uh but you, you know the further on in the journey we got you could just tell he wasn't he wasn't happy you know um uh, especially the resilient side of things when people let you down a lot in recruitment right um you know whether that's a candidate or a client and stuff like that it can become quite uncomfortable and i think lawrence naturally you know agreed with me that it wasn't right for him so he left um and and I also hired someone else that um, I knew from previous that come in and open up a London office mm. for us, and yeah, it just come crashing down quite quickly with COVID. So yeah, it was COVID was a blessing in disguise in the sense that I kind of had two people with me, Lawrence and and someone else, and it wasn't quite right. Um, and obviously, COVID come, our whole business went to zero overnight. I was actually in Poland. I got a call from my brother. Lawrence was ringing me saying, uh, these eight jobs or 10 jobs that we're working on, they've all been put on hold. And I was like, Jesus, Lawrence, I've only been out of the business one day. What, what have you done? And he's like, no, it's COVID. So we flew back from Poland and had absolutely no business on the board. And at this point, Gemma, my partner, was the co-owner of a company in Milton Keynes in recruitment. And you know, we looked at each other and was like, what are we going to do? Her and her business partner at the time had quite different visions for the business and where they wanted it to go. And I kind of just said, look, let's, let's, why don't we do it together? Um, obviously a lot of people would, would say, you know, working with your partners is a bit of a risk, but recruitment, uh, Gemma is, uh, firstly, Gemma's incredible. Like she is, um, and, and I know you want to talk a bit about leadership styles and stuff later on, so I'll maybe say this, but Gemma is the opposite end to me, and we really kind of work well together. So Gemma came in and joined uh, me, and at this point we had zero, um, zero work on the board. So we completely took a 360 and pivoted into construction. Mm. Um, never worked in construction ever in our lives, um, either of us. Um, so that at the time in the UK, that construction was still booming right they were still allowed to go onto site they were still allowed to keep building houses it was the only kind of industry i would say that really boomed massively through covid so the next day once we decided we were going to go in together we jumped in the car we found 50 building sites in and around bedfordshire and just went up to every single one of them with literature business card this is who we are introduced ourselves told them what we could do and within well in the nine months in covid we we kind of covered ourselves and more uh and yeah it was something that we when you look back to to pivot that quickly and be able to do that was was really great 
um, the fact that we were so lean as a team, it was only two of us and we, we could agile, we was agile, we could move mm. into different direction. Um, construction is very hard though, compared to head office commercial and what we do. So as soon as we were out of COVID, we jumped back to what we were good at. I, I can imagine. And, you know, e- even just convincing the clients in construction that you knew what you were doing, that you could be trusted. Clearly that was successful for you, but, but why was that? You know, was it that you were the only people that were, that were out there trying hard at the time, or was it that you very rapidly understood the market because you're used to dealing with, you know, different, different, different skill sets. You know, you can sniff out a good candidate from a bad candidate. All of a sudden you're dealing with people that you've never dealt with before. How did you manage to convince people to put their trust in you? I think we had one client that already worked in construction and we'd done all their head office commercial. And for two, three years, they kept nagging me to help them find a senior contracts manager or a site manager or a quantity surveyor. And it was from my side at the time, it's like, you know, that's not our areas of specialism. We want to double down in head office commercial recruitment. You know, I don't want to, and he kept chipping away and chipping away. And then when the pandemic come, he was like, he kind of threw us a bone as such, grabbed hold of it, filled it. And then the next time we went to, to and they were a very well-known firm in, in the area, and actually in the UK. Um, so that gives a little bit of leverage to kind of upsell kind of our capabilities. Um, and essentially recruitment done well, the actual process, you can replicate it in into different industries and different niches. Um, and actually sometimes I feel like that is a benefit because you don't have, um, no preconceived ideas of how things should be done or, you know, we don't do that in the scientific world of recruitment. Why not? You know, so our process are are, are very detailed, very thorough from a candidate and a client's perspective. So when we kind of put that into a construction element, you know, the proofs in the pudding with the candidates, right? So, um, getting one good candidate in. And they say, oh, we'll give you a second job and then a third job. And naturally, it just kind of grew from there. Obviously, high levels of activity, which we spoke about before, um, that it was it was sink or, it was sink or swim at this point. You know, I had, I've got, between us, we've got three children. We've, you know, Gemma very bravely walked away from a business that was doing incredibly well at this point. And, and you know, when we look back, we do sometimes sit there and say, wow, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't take that risk again. But at the time it seemed the right thing to do, but Gemma had a really amicable split as well from her ex business. We're still friends with the business partners and, you know, the, the, um, the couple that now own it and stuff. So when Gemma come in and joined us, yeah, we just rolled up our sleeves. Like I said, airdropped our processes into the construction element, kept the activity high, didn't kind of get too downbeat and when things weren't going well, just kept that resilience, kept the activity up. And then when we got the opportunity, we 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 kind of literally looked after it so well, like we'd won the lottery when we picked up a new job. We would cherish that opportunity and make sure we executed to the highest of standards. You know, and when I say execute to the highest standards, essentially in recruitment, our our product is people. It's not like we're selling a pair of headphones or, you know, uh, your house or whatever. You're selling people and people have got their own brain, their own minds. They do what they want to do, right? So 
it's not so much because you don't always 100% get it right. It's about how you deal with that, you know, the service that you provide when it goes wrong and how the, the honesty and transparency that you have with your clients and, and how you rectify the problems when they go wrong. And I felt like, I feel like maybe in construction that hasn't always been the way. So the fact that if something did go wrong, we I would get in the car and drive straight to site and find out what the problem is and why it's gone wrong or, you know, so that really stood us in good stead. So yeah, I would say a mixture of a few things, but um, yeah, we, we were, we were uh, successful in surviving, I guess, because small businesses normally fail in the first two years. So to ride that as well was tough. It, and it's amazing what a motivator looking after your family can be. And I think it's also a fantastic example of following the process, trusting the process, following the process and keeping, you know, keep doing the right things that you know are going to work even when the results aren't coming in. But in terms of personal resilience, you clearly don't have a dour personality. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of high frequency stuff going on there. How did you maintain your resilience? Because, you know, not every day was easy and, and results weren't falling at your feet day after day after day. You had to work hard for it. I really feel like it's just been ingrained for me from a young age, if I'm honest. I've obviously I've got an older brother, uh, Lawrence. He was always better than me when we were racing when we were kids and stuff. So I was never quite good enough in that sense at racing. He was always great, and I was kind of never making the main events and stuff as a younger kid. So from that age, I always, you know, had that kind of drive and ambition to be better and you know, want to be the best of the best of what I can be in myself. And, you know, if Gemma was to be on this podcast with us now, she'd probably say still to this day, it's probably it's my biggest driver, but also my biggest downfall because, you know, nothing's ever good enough. I always want more or, you know, when we do a great job, I'll be the person that sits there and say, well, we've done a great job, but we could do this better, that better, that could have been done better. So I think that kind of, that drive and that resilience was in, was kind of installed into me from a younger age. And also I, I do feel like um, your parents have a, a hell of a lot of an influence on you. Um, my dad has had quite a tough upbringing um, uh, as a child and, and maybe, you know, he's done very well for himself uh, in a business capacity, but maybe not so much in an, an emotional wellness capacity. So he was always quite hard on us, like as children, like he would drive us hard, um, but also support us hard in the sense that he would run us all over the world. So I think like um, that, that from a young age has always kind of been installed in me. It all, it, a lot of it always comes back to sport, doesn't it? And building the resilience around wins and losses. I have to say when, when I first met you, you were not racing. You were on the mic at the BMX national event. So you were, you know, more, more emceeing rather than commentating. And um, when, when you picked up the bike again in the run up to the 2012 Worlds, because everybody wanted to race the 2012 Worlds because they were in the UK. When you picked up the bike again, um, I was blown away at how good you were as you gradually got it back, you know, and then, and then everyone told me the stories about how you, and Warren Bancroft, you know, we're always racing against each other. And um, I was quickly educated as to how good you were. And then when I saw uh, Lawrence ride a bike, because I think he was more reticent <coughs> to pick it, pick the bike back up. And I don't think he picked it back up as quickly as you. But when I saw him ride as well, I was blown away as to how good he was. Yeah, I think he had six months back on the bike and he got 
fourth in the world championships. There was some good stories. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a, that was an amazing event. I remember that week in Birmingham and the sun shone, the racing was indoors, but, uh, you know, hanging out down by the canals and, and all the restaurants and that city was so vibrant for a week. It was fantastic memory. Yeah. BMX was, uh, has been a massive part of my life for many years. And actually, you know, when I look back, at it, it's taught me so much without even really knowing and also helped me see kind of the wider world. Obviously, you know, I'm really proud of my upbringing and where I'm from being from Luton town. Obviously everyone's seen, they've just recently made the premier league they have. and they're really riding the wave and, but it doesn't have the best reputation and, um, you can quite easily turn to the wrong things and get involved in the wrong crowds and stuff like that. And BMX was almost like my way out. Um, although I didn't really get much financial rewards from it to be able to kind of compete at international level from such a young age and go to different countries, um, you know, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, America, Germany, France, Austria, Belgium, Holland, went to all of these countries by the time I was kind of 15 It's you know, um, and at the time you don't realize how lucky you are. And that's why, you know, I say, you know, my dad was very supportive from, from that sense, you know, he, he um, you, you, you take it for kind of granted and it's not until your own children start riding and you realize how much it costs. You think, wow, how did, how did we afford to do this? Cause at the time it wasn't just me and my dad, it was me, my brother, my dad, my mom. Um, so yeah, I think BMX has been a, it's been a, a real kind of, I, I guess a, a shining light in my life from a young age. It's kind of helped me through many, many tough times. Um, yeah. When you talk about all walks of life, and you said earlier in the podcast how you can relate to to anyone, when you think about BMX, there's there's people that do everything they can to scrape together enough money to put a bike that's going to roll around the track, and they do everything they can to get to the races. And then there's millionaires, you know, with kids in the sport. So, so you spend time sat in the pens before the races with with people from a million different different upbringings, and nobody cares because you've got one job to do on that particular day. It doesn't matter, you know, once you lock into that gate, it's an even playing field in the sense of anyone could take the win. Obviously, you've got, you know, lighter bikes and all the stuff like that. But essentially, at any one time, anyone can make a mistake and crash out or, you know, you don't have to look at the Olympics. It's it's millimetres and tenths of a seconds now that makes the differences. Obviously, the sports evolve so much. But yeah, doesn't matter who you are, where you're from how old you are even you know you get people that are four years old racing up to kind of 54 even 64 nowadays yeah definitely and so it's like yeah it's an even playing field isn't it anyone can do it and and again anyone can win it at any given time i remember when this probably was about 2012 i did suggest to you and sean is it that that we do a bmx podcast and i think podcasting wasn't wasn't that popular at the time and had we done it, we'd have probably been highly inappropriate and it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a podcast that lasted long. But I really wish we'd done it because because you know we'd really had some traction by now. Uh, knowing, knowing how popular podcasts are, we you know, we should have done one at the time. Definitely, definitely. I do remember them times, yeah. So getting back to to running the business and the leadership, how big is your company now? 
So we're currently at eight staff at the moment. We're at eight staff. And we've probably got enough business to take on another five or six staff right now, but it's so difficult. Um, it really is difficult. One of the things that we've really had to kind of look at and double down on is kind of slowing down a bit to, to speed up again in the sense of hiring the right people um, and also probably being a little bit more data driven as opposed to, you know, I'm a heart on a sleeve kind of guy. Um, sometimes my emotions run away with me. So does my ambitions, etc. cetera. Um, and you don't always make the right decisions uh, through kind of um, instinctive emotional um, decision-making. So hiring the right people is, is, is going to be, is, is absolutely critical to the success of any business. And it's, in this, it's the one thing that really, makes me chuckle is that absolutely our businesses i would back us against the biggest you know recruitment firms in the uk in terms of finding our clients the right people but when it comes to us god it seems to be so hard um but we've got a real a real close-knit team now um morally ethically their core values what they stand for they're brilliant so we've now got the right foundations in place to kind of really excel and also like i said Gemma joined two and a half years ago up until that point i was a bit of a, a sprinting whirlwind leaving a mess behind me so the last two years have been about taking stock where we're at putting the right processes and infrastructures in place you know like i said being more data driven and data intelligent as a business um and actually having a clear business plan and a vision it wasn't until a year ago that we actually wrote a budget, a business plan and a vision for the business. Um, so Gemma coming on board with that has just, has just absolutely been game changing for us. Now we've got a lot more clarity. Everyone knows the expectations um, and it's, it's shaping up. Um, it's making things, it's taking shape quite nicely, quite quickly. This stage where you're at now in the business takes me to this leadership question that I spent a lot of time pondering, and it's the differences between leading in a big corporate environment and leading in an owned business environment. Because it, I have a theory that the stakes are different, and you know, you talk about it being really difficult to get someone for your team because the stakes are really high. Because you know, you're now having to remove yourself from the sharp end, and what made you successful you can't spend so much time doing because you have to ha have to run a team of people who can manage the volume that's coming through your business. So if you make a wrong decision and you've got someone that's not right for the organization, that that's not just going to reduce your business outcomes. It's at, you know, it could potentially put your solvency at risk, you know, in, in its most extreme circumstances. Whereas when you're leading in a corporate environment, there's a lot more cogs, there's a lot more safety nets. You know, if you're so inclined, you can get lost within the machine and a bad decision here and there have much smaller ramifications for the organization and infinitely smaller ramifications for the individual. So the idea I'm toying with is, does it make you lead differently in those two environments? And are the lessons that we can learn from each other? So that's a very complex question with so many layers to it, but I'll try to dissect the best I can. I think firstly, you mentioned the, the risk element of you know, if you make a wrong decision owning the business, it could 
you know, could have disastrous effects when actually in the corporate side, you know, sometimes it could go unnoticed because it's such a big, well-oiled machine as such. Okay. But on the flip side of that, also when you make the right decisions, you know, they can be astronomical and you're at the forefront of it. Whereas in, in, in a large corporate machine, if you make the right decisions, you're not always going to get the success or the exposure or the credit that you maybe deserve. Or also they might, it might not have that kind of wave or ripple effect through because it's so big. So it's very much kind of both ends of the spectrum. But one of the things, again, I guess that relates back to the initial stages of my recruitment career is that I like to know that I can be, I can create our destiny, that I can be um, at the table with people that I trust um, that work closely with me when it comes to making the right decisions for the business and for all the people that are in the business. Whereas sometimes when you was in the corporate, you didn't have that opportunity. It was like, that's your team kind of get on with it. Like bigger picture, you didn't really get as much say in it and they're all run as their own mini operations. So absolutely, I, I can see that question from both sides. I guess kind of, when I if I was to think about leadership in insomnium sense, we've got two very different leaders. We've got Gemma and, and myself, who are co-owners of the business, 50-50. Um, and Gemma is, um, so Gemma, I would say, has been the backbone since she's come in the last two and a half years. She's really created the vision. Um, she's really helped with the strategy, um, helped with the culture side of things. Um, very kind of process driven, very meticulous, very thought through, very um, all calm, collected. I'm a bit of a, a bit of a whirlwind, I guess. I don't know. You'd have to ask our people, but I know I'm slowly getting better. Um, like I said, when I relate back to the when I was an operations manager, I don't think I was very good at all, and I am slowly getting better. And when I talk about leadership, I find it such an interesting subject, and for me, it's forever evolving as a person in life and as a leader in business, you know, is something that I've always feel that like we can always get better at. So um, it's definitely been a learning curve for me, leadership. Um, but I think when I relate back to some great leaders that I've worked with before, not necessarily just in business, but in sport or anything, the key things for me is what made me feel good as, as their kind of, whether I was their teammate or one of their players or whether I worked for them, whatever was when I felt empowered, when people made me feel important and they empowered me to make decisions, when they listened to me, when they were empathetic, um, when I had absolute clarity of what the expectation was on me, whether it was to defend a corner kick or win a BMX European Championship or go out and knock a hundred doors to start a new business area, whatever that might look like. So when I relate to the things that made from that side, they're things that I'm slowly trying to kind of bleed into my day-to-day -day leadership. And I think also the way you show up every single day, right? Um, I read a really good book. I don't know if you've ever, ever read it. It's called The Slight Edge. No, I haven't um, read that one. By, it's called The Slight Edge. It's by a guy called Jeff Olson. And essentially what it talks about is, is the compound of interest, right? So if you make good decision, good decision, good decision, good decision, all of a sudden you'll have a trajectory like that just takes you up, 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 up. Whereas if you make bad decision, bad decision, bad decision, mm. all of a sudden out of nowhere, the compound of interest will just send you on the downward slope. And it's about 
me recognizing that making them right decisions every single day they add up to the bigger picture um and the way that you show up as a leader so um your out your your circumstances and your your home life and the way you eat, the way you exercise, the way you sleep, all of these things will have a, a knock-on effect to your day-to-day when you go into the business, whether you, you think about that or not. Subconsciously, they play out in your day-to-day behaviours, the way you communicate and all of that side of things. So I think from a young age, I've juggled many plates, like I said to you, different sports and hobbies, different interests. Now at a stage where since Gemma's come on board and the business is starting to take shape, we're really doubling down now in recruitment and what we're good at and not kind of, um, you know, not selling myself short, but like dilute myself for other things that, you know, like the bright lights, <laughs> um, a bit of a, so, so to double down where we are and work on the business and work on ourselves as leaders as well um, is, is, it's forever evolving. Um, but one of the reasons that Gemma and I set this up because, you know, in recruitment, you can, you can get paid quite handsomely from running a small little outfit is that we are very passionate about firstly delivering an excellent service for our clients and our candidates, but also to create opportunities for people that maybe don't have them opportunities. So currently we've got one of the things we do with all of our staff is the, within their first three months of joining us is we get we do a vision board with them. And the reason we do that is because I want to know what their drivers are and what motivates them and what they want from their life. Like, why do we go to work? And then I actually I actually take it personal that that is my goal to help them achieve that. So recently we've had one of our consultants that's bought their first house. You know, I, I absolutely buzzed off that. Whereas if I would have think, think about Chris six years ago and when I was the top performing recruitment consultant, that wouldn't have made me buzz back then. So, you know, there's lots of different things that we're doing to work on from our side. Um, and like I said, I can't speak highly enough about Gemma. She's uh, she definitely rules me in and brings me back down to earth, but also kind of gives you a much more um, kind of, I, I guess, kind of a, a data driven thought process that's meticulous and really thought through that makes sense definitely the yin to your yang i think that answer your question well off on tangent then (laughs) yeah no it does and i think back to i think back to your uh, example of when you worked for the sports embroidery company and you know the 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 owner of that company micromanaged you how have you resisted the temptation to micromanage your staff because it's possibly one of the biggest and easiest pitfalls for any new leader new manager to fall into because they they know the job they can do it and you know they want to control the outcome you know how to do this job but you know the impact of micromanaging someone because it happened to you and you didn't like it how have you resisted that i've struggled with it at times i have struggled with it at times i think as as a leader one of the things i didn't mention a moment ago is that you probably won't meet a more self-aware one than me um so i probably i have micromanaged people before and having a good relationship working relationship with them and then being able to open up being honest with me and then i go away and reflect on it and actually they're right i can change it but one of you can't change what you don't know right so we really encourage our people to be vulnerable with us and trust us Gemma and i we're not a hire and fire company we know if you do the right things every single day 
whether it's one month to, to get your first win or place your first candidate or win your first client, whatever, whether it's six months, if you're doing the right things every single day, it will happen. It's just a matter of time. It's just rinse and repeat the same kind of process. Right. Um, but sometimes with the, with the micromanagement element, I guess it's, that's what, when you've been around that for so long, sometimes you can't help but repeat them behaviors, but having, trusted honest relationships with your employees that where they feel like they can open up to you will then help me to kind of again like i said i'm by no no means the finished article when it comes to leadership um i don't think anyone ever is i don't think anyone (laughs) ever is if you think you are then you're definitely not yeah yeah no absolutely and i don't think i even if i'm even if we was you know at a stage now where we're if I were to look 10 years further down the line with our growth plans and where we want to get to, I know when I get to that point, I will still want to be better in certain areas and want to evolve and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, it has been a real challenge when it comes to not repeating behaviours that, that that I've seen and, and been um, a part of. But it's about making, trying to make our staff feel like it is a safe place, especially in recruitment, because it can be quite um, cutthroat at times. So with new staff, to get them to open up, be vulnerable. Um, and again, I think that comes down to the hiring process in terms of digging beyond the CV around kind of drivers, morals, ethics, you know, um, and all of them things. But yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a difficult one, especially if the chips are down and your, you know, cash flow might be tight or whatever that might, in a sense, you almost want to kind of ring fence everything and say, well, if I stay in control of everything, it will all be all right. But actually it's just kind of having the counter effect where, and, and it's something we're getting better at now. And, um, you know, there's even within the last week, um, getting CC'd into emails, I don't need to get CC'd to in, into anymore. So just to have a quick chat with the team and say, look, guys, I trust you. You don't need to CC me into that, do you? Like, oh, no, I just want to keep you in the loop. Uh, so, like, it's about, like, just the mindset, empowering the staff a little bit more, trusting them, knowing that, you know, we've trained and developed them well enough over the last months, years, whatever it might be, however long they've been with us, to know that um, we'll always be there if there's a problem to support them, but actually not to be breathing down their neck. Um, and it's it is a difficult one. Like I said, with the first three years that I had in London and that environment I worked in, it was very much um I wouldn't say I was completely micromanaged, but you knew the expectation and if they weren't hit, you you know, you'd be exposed for it. So yeah, it's just a, it's a it's a difficult one for sure. And that's why I ask because it I imagine the temptation is really you know, if it was me and and I was running a business and it was relatively small and the performance of my team made a difference to the car I drove or the house that I lived in or the quality of the food that I bought at the supermarket. I I can see the temptation as to why I would want to influence the outcome. And I can also Mm -hmm. see a point at which the size of your company hits critical mass. And I don't know what, where that is, where you can, where you can relax a little bit and go, I've actually got enough slack within the organization that I don't have to, Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, ride everyone's backs. But the question is, where does that come from? Because in big corporate, 
you can be patient to a certain extent. And in fact, there's probably two elements to to a, a leader's role in a big organization. And there probably is in a small one, but there's, there's this point where, where you transition and go, it really is now, in that I have to deliver results today, 100% part of my job, but I've also got to deliver results tomorrow when I'm gone. And part of that's building the talent and the capability that can do better than me and will live, you know, when I'm long gone and and will accelerate, outpace and, and you know, do do a better job. So I've got to deliver results today. I've got to deliver capability for tomorrow. That's that's always part of anyone's job in corporate life. It becomes part of your job in an owned business. But I don't know when it becomes part of your job. You know, I don't know when that transition point comes where there's now enough people in the business that I can afford to do this because there's enough slack. And and this is what I toy with and go, you know, is it, it different are these different styles appropriate and when do they become inappropriate and when does it flip over? You know, it's, it's not an easy yeah, one. To like I would say that we're probably just coming up to that crossroad um, where you don't have to be involved in every single day today um, because we've now got uh, right people, right seats. Yeah. So if you've got the right people in the right seats in the right roles, it just, alleviates so much pressure off your shoulders and and enables you as a leader to be able to empower your people and trust them and and also like i've mentioned data driven we've we've got so much better with data now that essentially like you can't deviate away from it we're not massive we don't massively kpi our people not compared to some recruitment agencies that's for sure we just want to make sure that we successfully place people into positions that they want to be in and stay in um that's essentially the main driver yes we have measurables that we measure against if you you know submit this amount of candidates a week over a period of time naturally you're going to be there or thereabouts but we certainly don't beat people with sticks not that anyone beats people with sticks anymore but we don't beat people with sticks in order to then to you must hit this amount of cv submissions you must do that you must do this because essentially we give them all their own budget Everyone has their own budget, their own financial budget on their head per year of what their expectation is. And you can't get away from that, right? Um, there's only so many bits of bad luck you can have, or there's only um, so many bits of good luck you can have. So um, you can kind of allow people to, we get into the point now where we, everybody we bring in, we want them to learn from the bottom, understand our business, our processes, our culture, the way that we work, the way that we, can help clients and candidates alike and then empower them and trust them to run their desk like it's their own business because they're going to extract the commission from it that can then you know have a knock-on effect to the rest of their life really yeah it makes a lot of sense now listen i can't let you leave this podcast without benefiting from some tips of the trade so anyone that listens to this podcast will have been or will be a candidate. And a lot of people that listen to this podcast will also be a client in terms of hiring. So I, I, I want to dip into your, uh, some of your deepest, darkest secrets and, and experiences in this industry around you know what to do or not to do as a <laughs> candidate and a client as well. Oof. What to do and what not to do. I think um, first I'll say recruitment, agencies don't have the best reputation in the market right we say the third most best 
bashed industry behind car sales and estate agents. And I understand why. I do understand why, because there is a lot of bad ones out there, but there's also some really good ones. Um, from a client's perspective, I would say you, you'll have your recruitment strategy, you'll have your recruitment budget, you'll have, you know, the number of heads that you need to recruit for year on year. It's uh, about what works best for you around your budget constraints and how much time you have and and how big the team is. So that's very dependent on 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 them attributes. But the benefit of recruit of working with a good recruitment partner is, you know, you'll get you'll get the inside knowledge, you know, in terms of you know what the market's like, who's on the market, what the salaries are, and all that side of things, you know, and in terms of the recruitment partner that you you're working with, they're going to save you time. Um, essentially, they should be saving you stress as well because recruitment is really stressful. So, to be able to kind of really streamline the process and make it as seamless as possible um, from a client's perspective. What's the um, biggest frustration that you have with with certain clients that you might work with or have worked with in the past? That they want to be involved in every step of the process. It makes it. Um, it, it, it's, it becomes very bitty. It slows it down. And um, so, for example, submissions of CV, mm -hmm. CV submissions. We actually don't do CV submissions anymore. Um, and well, with 90% of our clients, we don't. And this is the reason why. We offer all of our clients a 100-day guarantee. It's not a sliding scale like most agencies. If you're not happy in the first 100 days, for whatever reason, we give you a full refund of your money. Okay? So with that in mind, we just need, we have a seven hour process that we go through. So if I say to you, Alistair, you've got a role, whatever that might be, we can fill that role if you dedicate seven hours of your time. So if you've got a really hard role and you know you only have to, have to give us seven hours of your time to be able to fill that, as a senior professional that's extremely busy, how would that sound to you? Seven hours of your time to find the perfect candidate. Yeah, I'd do it. If, if I could guarantee it, I'd do that. Okay. We've got a 90 eight percent fulfillment rate every time a client works this way okay so seven hours give us one hour of your time at the start similar to this on a zoom or a facetime if we haven't worked with you before ideally we need to come down to your premises because we want to see the 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 office environment and all that side of things right first hour is a job brief so dot the i's cross the t's give us the overview of the organization what departments who's in this department what this role is how does it how does that piece of the jigsaw fit into the bigger picture um obviously go through the the role skill set um boarding the education the qualification induction you know everything start dates salaries benefits reason for the vacancy um what the interview process looks like is it one stage two stage all of that information right give us let us ex ask you as many questions as we can extract all that information from you at this point, before we leave that first one hour, we'll get some interview slots from you, right? So we want three one hour interview slots, first stage, two one hour, second stage. So essentially, first hour is the meeting. We now know at this point everything that you're looking for. And um, so, and we're going to offer you a 100 day guarantee. If you're not happy for whatever reason, we'll give you your money back, right? So we know what you're looking for, and we're going to give you your money back. So by this point, in essence, clients should trust you. Um, we then go away and do all of the process behind the scenes. Um, I won't go through that process 
because it's quite long-winded but we go through a real thorough rigorous yeah so you, you screen them all we qualify after the first stage of qualification i say qualify because we don't sell roles to candidates because that's where it all goes wrong pushing people into the jobs if you start selling to people from the from the offset they become nodding dogs so qualifying what the candidates needs are knowing that in the background you've got a job that potentially could be good for them so at that stage if they could you will then give them a job description name the company and we expect them to go around and do some due diligence look at the company website go through the spec really kind of iron out make sure it's going to be right for you at that stage we then get them on a face-to-face on a zoom teams sometimes face-to-face but with covid don't really need to do that so much more at that stage of being we'll, we'll we'll just go through double down in terms of their skill set the role the expectations the culture and all of that stuff and make sure they're a good fit shortlist them and then our first stage of the process is we will finalize our shortlist and submit into the client's diary of who they're seeing before the client will see them we will do a third stage where we do an interview preparation what do you know about ex-client what's your understanding of the role have you thought about your strengths what questions have you thought about just to make sure that they're committed and not going to waste the client's time so back to what i said initially first stage is a one hour extract from you second hour third hour fourth hour is first stage interviews fifth hour and sixth hour is your second stage interviews the seventh hour is a catch up with us contracts feedback references all of that stuff fantastic so if we take that all away from you um and you just so today is friday we say five to eight maybe ten working days for a new client just to give us a little bit of leeway if you give us them them time frames you know the time frames the client know, the candidate will know the client time frames so we can just manage the whole process we know exactly what you want we also go through what you don't want in terms of what you don't want to see on a cv you know what job title is not going to be good for this mm-hmm. we go through everything so we just it just enables us to mitigate all of the bittiness of submitting a cv you give us a time to interview then the candidate can't that do that time then it's another day before i come back to you it just streamlines the whole thing and it just makes it so much it makes it work so much more um so much more seamlessly and the times when we really struggle as a business and to find people is when people don't work like that it's hard it's really hard because you're always on the back foot you're always chasing the candidate or chasing the client or it becomes very bitty so that is one of the things that's done really well for us i think from a client's perspective going back to the question was clients need to vet and qualify and understand what they expect and what they want from a recruitment partner before they go out and source that and what drives them are you driven by price because that essentially is going to affect quality are you driven by quality of candidate are you driven by volume what does your driver look like once you understand that you can then start to write some questions down as to how you're going to vet the right partner for you because one of the things we do really well as a business is we don't work with everyone because essentially there's different it's kind of horses for courses right um we don't drop our prices we never drop our prices we're probably the most expensive recruitment agency in bedfordshire and that's because i 100 100 back and believe in everything we do as a business and every single one of our consultants and if it goes wrong we will be there to put it right yeah that's the so, beauty. 100%. So, and, and again, it does go wrong because you're dealing with human beings, right? But so in terms of um, clients, it's knowing what you want and what you expect from a recruitment agency and, and having them honest relationships and knowing that they take time to nurture and it's not going to be perfect from day one. But by having f- 
in, by kind of you qualifying that partner correctly, you've got to kind of stick by them and give them a chance, you know, um, to, to rectify the wrongs and to iron it out. So one of the things we do quite well as a business is quarterly service review. So we go and see every client, even if it's going well, we go to see every single client at least every quarter to review our business. And feedback for me is a gift. I want to know the bad more than the good, to be honest, because I want to make it better from that sense. So from a client's perspective, absolutely is about qualification uh, and knowing what your needs are and what your expectations are and then finding the right partner for you because there's so many different um, ways to attract candidates now and partner with different types of recruitment agencies for different prices about knowing what you need and what's going to fit your model, I think. Brilliant. So from a candidate's yeah. perspective, that's a whole other... Yeah. And it's really hard to get one. It's really hard to get one thing, but I guess what's the, you know, what's the worst frustration that, that you come across most with candidates? You know, if, if out of all the things that they do, what do you encounter time and time again that you just wish you could say, just don't do that? At different stages of the process, I guess there's different things, but the one thing for me is dishonesty, I guess. Um, and... I understand why, because not everybody has their best intentions at heart, right? So they've got to protect themselves and their career and their livelihoods. So I do understand that, but just being honest, I guess, um, it's, it's such a simple thing. But, you know, I, I, I understand, for example, you know, if someone gets counter-offered or if they don't want to go for an interview because it's got offered elsewhere, but just pick up the phone and tell us, like, it's not a big deal. We've got to have your best interest at heart. So... From a candidate's perspective, again, I would say also partnering with the right person. You know, for example, if, um, you know, you want to go to someone that's niche in your industry, that's that's a specialist because they're going to obviously have a better understanding of you and your needs and also the clients that they could potentially place you in. But being a candidate is hard work. I think a lot of candidates think if you just put your CV on a job board or or apply for a role, you're going to get a job, but you don't, you have to treat it like a job. You've got to be proactive. Um, I've just gone through it with my 18 year old daughter. She, you know, it's taken three months to get a job. And it's almost because I haven't wanted to kind of, again, kind of probably micromanage her, but um, also she needs to learn. So one of the things I said to her was like, how many jobs have you applied for? And she said, oh, about seven. I said, okay, brilliant. What jobs are they? Oh, I don't know. So have you not wrote a list of all these jobs down? Why would I write a list down? They're going to reply to me. If you wait for other people, you'll be waiting for a long time. So it's about being proactive. So I would always say kind of make sure you write a list of every person that you apply to and where you've applied for them for. If you don't hear back from someone in a week, follow it up on an email or pick up the phone. Make sure that if you're going for a variety of different roles and you're not 100% sure where you want to kind of go to, tailor your cv to each one but don't say you want to go forward for x role and have a different job title on in in your personal profile so you know being proactive and and um knowing that not one size fits all um and i guess also it's really difficult because you you don't want to get your confidence knocked so knowing that just because one company doesn't value your skills doesn't mean that another won't absolutely cherish them. Um, and it's, it's a process. And if you work with a good recruitment partner and if you, you know, be proactive with your search and 
do the little things that other people don't do, like picking up the phone and following up an application or thanking them when they reject you on an email or whatever it might be. These little things will, again, it's that compound of interest. They'll all add up and eventually you'll, you'll pay the rewards from it. Um, just going back to what you said about clients, one of the things that just kind of light bulb moment was uh, feedback. Feedback for candidates and knowing that the detriment it can have on your brand reputation in the market when you don't give the right feedback or you don't partner with the right people because on a, on average every role that we recruit for we speak to about 100 people between 80 and 100 um and we're only putting three of them through and one of them is going to get the job so when they're talking to them how are they disengaging with them how are they talking about your brand how are they talking about your culture you know and typically british people tell I think on average it's two people with a good experience and 10 of a bad or something like that so if you if you're working with a partner that's speaking to 98 people that have got bad things to say about you <laughs> from one job it could be up to a thousand people that have got a bad experience i, I, I mean i'm i'm elaborating yeah. a bit too much on that you get what i mean so like that brand reputation whether you're working directly to market yourself as a company or through a partner it's just like you're dealing with humans just be human and <laughs> um, little things, you know, I like that advice. Yeah. That, that, that's critical. And you can invest thousands in your employee value proposition, but you can ruin it yourself really easily if you don't give that feedback. And I also like the, the candidate elements and the fact that you're coaching your own daughter around how to, you know, adopt some of those simple practices, the honesty one as well. That's a, that's a really good one. And, I need to shout out a guy called Gerard Creeden, who's a recruiter in the Brisbane area. And he brought me over from the UK to Australia. And he put an incredible amount of work in to make it happen. And I remember and I, we, we'd spend a lot of time. It'd be late at night in the UK and I'd be you know, on the phone speaking to him. And he'd ask me, you know, are you definitely coming? Are you definitely coming? Is your house up for sale? Does the family know? Because I think so many people had pulled his chain in the past going, oh, Clay, I want to go and live in Australia. It's sunshine. It's great. And, the, and he put all this effort in and, and it, you know, it's extra effort to bring someone from overseas as well. So it's, it's not even the normal amount of effort. It's probably double that. And he just wanted and me how, to be honest that, with him. How, how did that make you feel having someone there that you, you feel like you can ask questions and have that relationship with and get advice from and talk about? How did that make you feel? Uh, I, can tr I could trust him implicitly. And it, it was, you know, it was a, a life changing moment for me. So it, so it kind of changed my life going from the UK to, the, to Australia and opened up a whole new wealth of possibilities. So I always remember the role that Gerard had in doing that. And since, you know, Brisbane's a relatively small environment. So I've worked with Gerard since because, because I know how the care he puts into his candidates. And he's, he's one of the best recruiters in Brisbane. I'm not going to say he's the best because I work with lots of good recruiters in Brisbane and there's, and there's a few really, really, really good ones. But he, but he is someone that I will always trust because I know the care he puts into his candidates. And he, and he shows that same care to the client as well. Because the client was taking long, a big risk. And how long ago did you move to Australia? Uh, eight years I've been here now. And you're still talking about him. So this is what we're trying to kind of bleed into our staff is that us holding on to money, if it doesn't work out, is only going to be to our own detriment because they're never going to use you again. So why would you you put the wrong person in there Obviously not on purpose. Um, if someone falls out for whatever reason, you know, like I said, human beings, anything can happen. But by not running a mile and actually offering them money back or giving them a free replacement, whatever that might look like, that goes 
that goes so far in the long run. You know, touch wood, um, since we started Somnium Recruitment five years ago, we've only had one company that we don't no longer work with, that we've engaged with, and that's through our choice because they're, you know, some of the things they were doing wasn't morally or ethically aligned with what we expect. Because people, we, we partner with them. We, we work with them in partnership to get the best results. It's not, we're the recruitment agency here to take your money. Um, and I think one of the things that has been, you know, installed into me from, from the early days when I started in London was, one, I had a really good manager, a lady called Catherine McTwiggan. She was brilliant for me. Um, and one of the things she always said to me is, Chris, look, don't worry about the money, okay? Do the right things every single day. Do the right things and the money will look after itself. And true to his word, I'm here 10 years later and it really, that, you know, it couldn't be truer. But at the time when you were early in the career, it, I used to look at her and think she's a hippie, like a bit hippie-ish, you know what I mean? Like, don't worry about the money. Well, what are we here for? But by doing the right things every day by client and by candidate, the money you don't even need to worry about because it just looks after itself. So, um, and but I understand, you know, why recruiters are not always honest and 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 you know, there's lots of kind of stigma around the industry because it's confront there's com a lot of confrontation and people don't like confrontation. So um I do understand it and one of the things that we're really passionate about as a business is driving the standards within the industry and it's something i'm really passionate about so a little bit cheesy but somnium i don't know if you know what somnium means but it actually means dream in latin and the reason i called it dream was because anytime i talk to people about recruitment if i go to uh, out for a meal and someone says oh, what do you do for work so you work in recruitment they go oh and i'm like what do you mean and they're like oh recruitment yeah you know you just send a cv and take our money and like what but no our business is the complete opposite to that so a nightmare dream somnium creating a better future is at the is at the heart of everything we do and you know our core values as a business is is an acronym of is service so selfless empowering resourceful virtuous innovative caring and extraordinary and service is at the forefront of everything because what is service right it's not a product it's not a you can't smell it. You can't taste it. It's a feeling, right? It is. Our, yeah. And and it's how you make people feel. And every single candidate, every single client, every single person that we touch base with, we're delivering a service to. Whether it's good news or if it's bad news, it's, you know, you do have to deliver bad news, but it's how you deliver it. You know, if we're not the right um, agency to represent them because they haven't got the right skill sets, that's not a problem. What agency can we recommend them to go to or can you still tell them where are they looking on the job boards? Can they make any improvements on their CV? Have they got a LinkedIn profile? You know, have they got watchdogs set up for when jobs come up on the roles that they're looking for? You're not, you might think that doesn't add value, but that is invaluable to a person that's looking for a job that doesn't know that. So for us, it's every step of the way, being able to create a better future, help people and I guess just do the right things. And I know it sounds so simple, but like you mentioned about me helping Shannon, my daughter, to find a job, I speak to Shannon and my son, Lou, who's 14, and say, if you shake someone's hand and look them in the eye and say, good morning, how are you? You're already 10 steps ahead of half of your generation because they don't do that anymore. That's true. So the little things, you know, the little things um, uh, that amount up to make to make the bigger picture i think 
That's fantastic. This has been a great conversation. I've it's the the podcast is called Life Lessons, and I've started asking people at the end if you've got one piece of advice that you can pass on to someone as a result of you know all your experience, the journey that you've been on, what you've created. What would that be? I could give a bit of advice. The biggest bit of advice I would give to anybody and everybody is to believe in yourself. No matter what it is, your dream or believing in yourself is absolutely the biggest bit of advice I could be I could give. And being accountable for where you are right now in your life because every decision that you've made today is why you are where you are and what you've got is what you deserve so accountability is absolutely critical to to that as well so believing in yourself yes but also taking responsibility and accountability to where you want to get to and 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 you can achieve and you can achieve anything you put your mind to with the right people around you right plan and the right decision so yeah believing in yourself because if someone would have said to me you know nine years ago when i crashed my bmx the world championships and started being a floor lay that i would run a business that's you know where we are now doing the figures that we're doing i would have never believed them in a million years and we've we've only just started so in five ten fifteen years time i know and can kind of almost project where we're going to get to and i'm a normal person from luton you know that's just worked hard and done the right thing so believing in yourself and yeah being accountable for your actions i guess well said and i couldn't be happier for you chris map thank you very much it's been really good legend thank you for having me on (laughs) 